Welcome to the Truth Be Known podcast, bringing you the objective truth boldly, candidly, and without apology. Welcome to this week's episode. Well, hey guys, welcome back to another episode of the Truth Be Known podcast. I am Nathaniel Jolly. And I am Eki Tepsapornchai. Eki, it's good to see you again, brother. As always, I enjoy this time we have each week. Yeah, me as well. And uh, last week's um, episode that we did on the definition of love, I've been hearing a lot of people that uh, were edified by that. So I'm very thankful for that feedback, thankful that that's been helpful to you, um, hopefully on your church as well, Nathaniel, as well as the people from my church. I've been hearing some good things. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, just on that topic, um, guys, if you're listening, we love to hear uh, stories like that. If what we're doing is edifying to you and it's impactful, shoot us an email, let us know. We'd love to hear those things. You can uh, send it to our email, which is truthbeknownpodcast at gmail.com. That's truthbeknownpodcast, all one word, at gmail.com. We'd love to hear for you uh, from you, so you can do that. Well, brother, we have another exciting topic today. In fact, all of our topics are exciting because, you know, w- what other topics are as exciting to talk about than theology and scripture and things of the Lord? But today is a good one. It's also... Strangely enough, a bit of a hot topic in some circles. The We're going to talk about the believer's eternal security or the perseverance of the saints, right? So, why does it matter what view we have on eternal security? Why is that a big deal? Yeah, you know, when Jesus says that those who believe in him will have eternal life, um, that word eternal has meaning. Um, it means that once you have it, you can't lose it. And if you lose it, then it was not eternal. Um, it, uh, you just can't use that kind of verbiage. So I, I think most believers, and I, I thought this would not be a t- controversial topic, but I thought most believers would understand that salvation, you know, however you debate uh, whether you understand or would affirm God's election, um, the unconditional nature of that, uh, whether you believe that or not, I thought at least we could say that once you are saved, you're always saved. And surprisingly, there was someone recently who really came up against me and was throwing a lot of scripture at me. And each time I responded, he kept throwing more scripture at me. And what's odd is that he would affirm a lot of what we would affirm. Uh, For instance, hermeneutics matters. He would say that all of the scriptures um, is internally consistent. There's no contradictions there. Um, So he would affirm a lot of what we would affirm. And and yet he's coming up with these um, odd notions that you can actually lose your salvation. And there have been some that said, hey, this is a debate that's been waging for really the last 500 years. Um, It's not really worth uh, debating it. And I thought, well, I disagree. I think this is foundational. I think the idea that Jesus came and died for our sins once and for all, and that those who put their faith into him have eternal life and that can never be taken away, I think that is extremely foundational for the believer. And I would be concerned about anyone who thought that you could lose your salvation. In fact, it was even surprising to me that some said that um, that the view that we have, that once you are saved, you're always saved, is actually one that causes people to doubt their salvation, uh, you know, wonder about the assurance of salvation, whereas somehow their view is more secure, which kind of boggles my mind. But uh, yeah, that's something that uh, we're going to talk about this morning or today. Yeah, I saw a few of those comments, and I, I've seen them over the years. I, I think the, the the implications of believing that you could lose your salvation could be as severe as not being saved, right? I think, thankfully, there's a lot of cognitive dissonance 
in there. And so people don't really believe what they always communicate. And and that's a grace, I think, for a lot of folks. You know, it's kind of the old axiom in Reformed theology that, um, you know, if you have genuine faith, you'll never lose it. If you lose it, then you never had it, right? Yes. So, this this is not a new belief by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, and, uh, you know, ultimately, um, and we'll get into some of this stuff, but if you believe you can lose your salvation, how is that then not a works-based salvation? Because right. it presupposes that you have to be good enough to keep it, does it not? Right. Yeah, and, and that's the issue. Because if, if we could lose our salvation, we absolutely would constantly. And uh, to earn it back does imply some sort of works because it's not just by faith. Um, we would say that you're saved by faith. Now, we might also you know, further qualify that as saving faith, the type of um, saving faith that causes you to repent because the gospel call is to repent and to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, but yeah, if you can lose it and, and go back and forth, I, I don't see how anyone can be secure in that because we we all have seasons uh, where we may have greater difficulty than other seasons. And for someone who has professed their faith in Christ, if they're in a moment where they have lost their salvation and suddenly they get hit by a truck, um, are we saying that they're not saved um, because of of that moment? You know, so I mean, when you really think through these scenarios and the situations um, involved, it really doesn't make any sense. And I don't believe you can find anywhere in Scripture where that is actually happening. But to your point, and we would go to First John two nineteen. If someone mm-hmm. has truly walked away from the faith, uh, John says, "Well, it's to show us that they were never truly of us to begin with." Mm-hmm. And uh, this mm-hmm. particular person who said you can lose your salvation said the Book of Hebrews is all about how a believer can lose his salvation. I said, uh, "No, it's not. It's about how true believers will persevere in the faith." Yeah, and uh, and I think we can even show that by looking at uh, Hebrews as well. Brother, you know what other group out there believes that you can die in an unsaved state? The Catholic Church, right? There's a such thing as the teaching of uh, dying in mortal sin. Um, So, for instance, if you choose not to go to Mass and you, you know, die on that that day, you know, you will spend, you'll go to purgatory because you died in a particular type of sin. For those who understand the Catholic Church, that's not a group you want to fit into. Uh, but that's that's exactly the kind of thing that the Catholic Church teaches, right? It's a salvation by works. In fact, uh, of the official teaching is still the anathematizing of anyone who believes in justification by faith alone. Yeah, right. And we see that in Scripture, that it is justification by faith alone. I mean, that's the whole basis of the book of Romans, right? I mean, this whole reason why Paul uh, writes uh, the, the letter of Romans, you know, the gospel, he is not ashamed of the gospel, for it is, uh, it is, it is the righteousness of God uh, in salvation through the gospel for those who believe. And so, salvation is by faith. And of course, we know the passage of Romans 3, 21 through 26, that the righteousness of God was first manifested through the law of God, but the law of God cannot save anyone. The law of God condemned all of us. Um, but by the grace of God, he manifested his righteousness through his son. And so the righteousness of God is obtained by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, 2 Corinthians 5.21, of course, we all know that. He who, he, knew, he who made him, he made him who knew no sin to become sin on our behalf mm. so that we might become the righteousness of God um, in Christ. And all that is by faith. It is clear, clearly in the Bible. 
Um, but uh, the Roman Catholic Church, after the Reformation, if you know your church history, they had the Council of Trent um, shortly after the Reformation, where they affirmed the Apocrypha as being a part of Scripture. And really, they did everything they could to fight against this idea of justification by faith alone, um, really because they wanted to maintain the importance of their clergy and, uh, and the, the need for an infallible interpreter, which is kind of silly also, the idea that the Pope is the infallible interpreter when throughout history we see a lot of examples of popes not agreeing with one another from age to age. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, let's just jump in and see what Jesus himself says about salvation and being kept, because you know what? You can argue with us if you want to. Um, of course, we're pulling straight out of scripture, um, but let's just see. Uh, go, go to John 10. Uh, in fact, if you're listening and you have a Bible open, you can do that. Just turn there. John 10. I'm going to read a few passages. Uh, I'll back up to verse 22 through 30. Uh, so, says this at the time of the feast of the dedication took place at jerusalem it was winter and jesus was walking in the temple in the portico of solomon the jews then gathered around him and were saying to him how long will you keep us in suspense if you are the christ then tell us plainly jesus answered them i told you and you do not believe the works that i do in my father's name these testify of me but you do not believe because you are not my sheep My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give them eternal life to them, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the the Father are one. There's no clearer passages in Scripture about eternal security than that right there. Yeah, that that um, that's the language of absolutes. Um, they, I give eternal life to them. They will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father is greater than is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. So, the question for those who say that you can lose your salvation here here's the question: In this passage, if they really did want to emphasize that your salvation is secure, that you can never lose it. How else would they have voiced it except the way they voiced it here? Um, so I, it's it's very clear. Now, what they'll do is they'll insert into the blanks. Um, yeah, you will never lose it as long as you don't do anything to lose it. So as long as you continue walking faithfully, you will be in the Father's hands and then no one will be able to snatch you. Well, if that's the case, then what exactly is this passage protecting us from? You know, yeah. if you're saying that you yourself can lose your salvation, okay, then what was the point of this passage? How is it that they protect us if our own sins can actually cause us to lose it? There's so many layers uh, of protection in here. I mean, here you have Jesus saying, these are my sheep. They're my sheep and they hear my voice. And so we understand that. I know them. They know me. They follow me. I mean, he, he starts with saying he gives them eternal life, right? So you have that right up front. Again, we talked about understanding the word eternal. Words matter. Um, it, you know, the Holy Spirit, Spirit didn't just arbitrarily move on these men to write words without very spe- specific um, intentions, right? He uses the words purposefully. So, he says that he'll give them eternal life, but then he turns around and duplicates that in the same sentence and says, and they will never perish. Well, yep. he just said the same thing twice, right? Um, he gave it to us in a positive affirmation and then in the negative. Not only do I give them eternal life, but then they'll never perish. And then he goes beyond that. So this is Jesus saying, um, I give them eternal life. But then he goes beyond that 
you know, to the father and says, not only that, but no one can pluck them out of the father's hand. So you, you have to, you have to believe that somehow we can slip not only Christ's grasp, but even that the father isn't able to keep those who belong to him. Yeah, this is again the language of absolutes, and he's uh, he's emphasizing it multiple times in multiple ways, and and I love even um, the positive example that you point out uh, when he says, "My sheep hear my voice." So those who are the sheep of Jesus Christ, one they hear this voice, um, they 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 know Jesus Christ knows them, and they being the sheep, they follow him. And so th- this is this is an affirmation that the ones who are the sheep of Jesus Christ follow Jesus Christ, and and Jesus doesn't create different categories here. Well, some of them are my sh- my sheep, and then they're going to stop following me, and then they're going to get lost and whatnot. No, this is speaking very forthrightly, and in fact, even um, the direct answer to the question that uh, they had asked, saying, "If you are the Christ, tell us plainly." And Jesus says, "I told you, you do not believe." And he goes on, verse twenty six, "You do not believe because you are not of my sheep." which is an incredible statement because today most people will say, well, um, you are not the sheep because you don't believe, right? I mean, yeah. I mean, if you, if you believe, you become the sheep. And if you don't believe, you're not the sheep. That's not what Jesus says here. He says, you do not believe because you are not my sheep. Yeah. So, in other words, you had to have been my sheep in order to believe. And, and so, all this to, to say that Jesus Christ's sheep, he will rescue those who are his, and yeah. he will protect those who are his. No one can take them out of his hand. No one can take them out of the Father's hand. They will never perish. I mean, this is the language of never and yeah. no one, you know? So, <clears throat> so we, we have this language made very clear. It's almost like we were chosen or something like that. Almost, um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And, 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 you know, I just, so I, I will say I've had a couple guys go to the end of this and say, well, absolutely. No one can snatch them out of the father's hand, but you can slip away somehow, right? right. Like you can, okay, well, all right. So I think we've established and, and anyone that can reason uh, would have to argue if if there is a way that you could nullify your own salvation, you have to believe in a works-based salvation. I mean, there's no way around that, right? right? If right. you can do anything either to earn or have to do anything to keep, then you're doing a works-based thing. Well, let's just go to Galatians and hear what Paul says about righteousness coming through the law. Um, and it, you know what? So I, I'm just going to go to, uh, I'll start at verse 20, Galatians 2, verse 20. So he says, I and the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. So, amen. Yeah, amen to that. Yeah, um, run with that, brother. Yeah, righteousness does not come through the law. Again, what we were saying, and that's uh, that's what Romans um, goes to really illustrate over the first three chapters when it concludes in chapter three, verse twenty, um, that everyone is going to stand condemned before God because no one is righteous. Um, the the law that was revealed by God has no power to save, and it has no power to save because it set what the standard is and the only way you can justify yourself is by meeting it absolutely perfectly and so we understand the law has no power to save the way the only way that god could have saved us is to send his son or at least the 
a chosen way of God to save us, to send his son, and his son lived the perfect life according to the law, and then turned around, being the God-man, being able to pay for the sins that everyone deserved to pay under the law. And so only by taking away those sins, by, by giving us forgiveness of sins, as well as giving us the righteousness of God from Jesus Christ, that is how we have salvation. Now, that is how we can be justified by God. There is no other way because obedience um, is, is impossible. Uh, because if we want to justify ourselves by obedience, well, we have to be perfectly obedient to all. But that was the reason why Jesus Christ died on the cross, because none of us are. None of us are that way. None of us are good. None of us seek after God. None of us understand. We have all turned aside together. We have become useless. And so Jesus Christ, by giving his life as the price, um, as the propitiation for the wrath of God, um, that is what um, allows us to receive the righteousness of God uh, through faith. Yeah, absolutely. And you alluded to James 2.10 there. Uh, where it says, for whoever keeps the whole law yet stumbles in one point has become guilty of all. So, you know, the reality is, I mean, again, just a lot of just clear thinking and reasoning here. Um, I, if if you have to do anything in order to keep your salvation, then, you know, you've put yourself in the place of James 2.10, where you are now bound to keep the whole law perfectly all the time. Uh, if you ever, If you get it wrong once, then you're right. guilty of the whole law. And, it, you know, we understand guys who have bought into the idea of sinless perfection. I mean, this is kind of where they bought into some of this stuff. I don't meet a whole lot of those guys personally, but there are some out there. Um, and, yeah, so, you know, the, the point is that we can't earn our salvation. And, uh, you know, even most of these guys we've interacted with, they, they would generally affirm that salvation is, you know, all Christ's work and not of our own. Um, there, there's just some disconnect there, I think. And I'm, I'm not really sure what the need is to, to hold on to it, except, you know, I think modern day evangelicalism, where maybe guys are wanting to combat the idea of you, you walk down the aisle and you say a prayer and you say the you know, sinner's prayer, which isn't in the Bible, and and then you think you're good to go. And so the kind of the old once saved, always saved, you know, old time Baptist thing that came out of that. Maybe, maybe the guys are trying to confront that, but we can never get to the place where we believe I have to maintain my own salvation. Right. Um yeah, and, and I think the other side of that too, we are not um we we are not supporting antinomianism, right? So we are not saying yeah, that once someone is, if someone is saved, they can just go back to their prior manner of life and live the way they had uh, lived previously to, to knowing Christ. Um, now, someone's going to hear that and say, well, now you're contradicting yourself because that's, you're essentially saying that they need to walk in a certain way in order to, to be saved. Well, no, what we're saying is that true faith will necessarily lead to a changed heart, a new nature, a, yeah. a desire, a, a love for God, and, um, and a love for God that produces fruit. Um, what, what does John the Baptist say when he first sees the Pharisees and the Sadducees? He's baptizing people by the river. They came to him wanting to be baptized. And, you know, John the Baptist was not seeker-sensitive. He didn't say, okay, whoever wants to be baptized, <laughs> go ahead and be baptized. What did John yeah. the Baptist say? He said, who told you to flee the wrath to come? And he tells them, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. In mm. other words, he saw them and, and he called them a brood of vipers, right? He called them a brood of vipers. He looked at them and said, I will basically, I'm not going to baptize you until you've shown you're ready to repent. And he knew how they operated. 
and um, and in their eyes, they have nothing to repent of, really. Um, so <clears throat> we're not saying antinomianism, but what we are saying is that once saved, once saved, always saved. We would affirm that, but also once saved, you have a you have a new nature. Yeah. And in fact, let me let me take us to um, Ezekiel chapter thirty six, and and I mm. love going to two passages in the Old Testament: Ezekiel chapter thirty six, Jeremiah chapter thirty one. In fact, I'm preaching on these two passages this coming Sunday. Um, but in Ezekiel chapter thirty six, starting from verse twenty two, now recognize the context here. Ezekiel was the prophet in Babylon, which means that the Israelites had already been fully exiled. Mm -hmm. They were exiled in three stages out of Judah, and and the northern kingdom was exiled even earlier um, by Assyria. But they're in um, they're they're in Babylon, and um, Ezekiel. So you you understand this only happened because they were continually disobedient to the law of God, part of the Mosaic covenant, part of the curses for disobedience, going back to Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28. If they continue to disobey and refuse to repent, they would eventually be scattered mm -hmm. in all the surrounding lands. And so in Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 22, we read this, therefore say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm about to act, but for my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations where you went. I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned in their midst. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when I prove myself holy among you in their sight. Now, why am I reading this? Because the people were scattered, and not only were they scattered, but they were dishonoring God because they were being scattered by their disobedience. Mm -hmm. They were completely disobeying God. They are completely profaning his holy name. And God says he's going to act, not because of something that they do first. He's going to act on his own. But this, this gets even better. Verse 24, for I will take you from the nations, gather you from all the lands and bring you into your own land. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Notice God is the one doing all the action. The Israelites are not doing anything. But here's, here's the real key. Verse 26, moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Mm. And verse 27, I will put my spirit within you and cause you, God causes mm. you to walk in my statutes and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. What I'm saying here, and, and this inevitably, it is tied to the doctrine of election. It is tied mm. to God's sovereignty over our salvation, that those whom he chooses, he's the one that reaches out and he saves. It's Ephesians chapter two, verse four, but God um, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. He made us alive together with Christ, even when we were dead in our transgressions and sins. So my point here, when God acts, when God finally acts, he acts not because of something that we did to prove ourselves worthy. He did it to vindicate his holy name. And the only way he could vindicate his holy name is by replacing our old heart with a new heart, a new nature, a new spirit. And he's going to cause us to actually be obedient. And the New Testament even says God is the one that grants us repentance. Uh, we know that God gives us grace. That's Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. And so all of these, when, when you understand, and then this is the beauty 
the the depth of salvation. I mean, it's it's amazing when you really study it because the gospel itself is very simple. Um, it, it doesn't take a, a genius to understand and to respond to the gospel. But when we really dig into it, we see all these all this depth of, of doctrine and, and the working of God's plan and how God um, accomplishes all this, uh, not merely just forgiving us, giving us righteousness, um, you know, uh, uh, giving us a new nature and all those things. So um, this is, to me, one of the um, antidotes to antinomianism, you know, this idea that we can just do whatever we want. Well, no, because if you look at the Old Testament, it makes it very clear. Israel failed to obey, and God's solution was to actually change our nature. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, so from the very beginning, you know, nothing nothing is uh, of our own accord, right? We didn't bring ourselves to salvation. God does all that. Yeah, I, I think, brother, sometimes when we say perseverance of the saints, it can be a little misleading for folks because it, it could give the impression that it's something that we do, right? That we persevere. Well, that's not what we mean by that, right? Um, I, I think it was R.C. Sproul that uh, said that he prefers putting the article the in front of that, the perseverance of the saints. In other words, God causes us you know, to persevere. It's an outside source. It's not a work that we do in and of ourselves. And that's, that's just true from the, the beginning of salvation all the way to the end. And yeah, absolutely. The antinomian uh, stuff, you know, I mean, we're told we're called to be holy as he is holy there. We have fruits of the Holy spirit. Right. And so um, there, there's always some evidence of genuine salvation. And then, of course, we mentioned John. Um, you know, we, we get to that passage and, you know, people always, First uh, John, rather, where he says, those who went out from us were never really of us. And it's interesting. Um, I mean, we could just do this over the last year. Look at how many people have yeah. left the faith, right? right? Um, and, and then you, you look at their lives and you see that there was actually evidence contrary to genuine salvation you know in some cases they've been hiding just gross years and years um oftentimes they'll come out and and say things like well i've been struggling with believing this scripture you know really my whole christian life but you know whatever the excuse is um yeah and and so we absolutely don't want uh any anyone to think we're saying yeah you know, we're, we're saved. And so now there's no proof of that. Absolutely. There's proof of that. And well, the, the desire to be holy is just the desire in itself is an evidence of one of the evidences of salvation. Is it not? You, no one without the spirit of God desires to truly be holy. You can only get that because you've been regenerated by God. Yeah, oftentimes um, the criticism against our position is really the assurance of salvation. Um, mm-hmm. How does someone know that they're saved? And we often hear the question of someone saying, um, I'm worried that um, I haven't been elected, right? I, I'm, I'm worried about that. And the first question I always go to is, what is it that you believe about Jesus Christ? Mm-hmm. Uh, because really the proof of our salvation is your confession. What is it that you believe about yourself? What is it yeah. that you believe about Jesus Christ? And, and what is it that you confessed about him? Um, is he 
your master. Now, we might find in looking at our walk that we haven't been obedient. We haven't been treating him as, as our Lord. And I say master, by the way, the word curios in, in the Greek, mm-hmm. same word, Lord, master, yep. same word. And uh, the, the same word often used for bondservant is doulos, uh, mm-hmm. same word as slave. And some people yep. argue that slave has, uh, doulos has all kinds of different meanings. Well, I would say that every time in the Greek, when we see doulos used in a secular sense, it is always a slave. Always, yeah. yeah. Um, it, it just gets translated differently when you know Paul identifies himself as a slave of of Christ. Um, but yeah, I, I I totally agree. We we recognize um, that uh, we are saved. We recognize that uh, Jesus is our Lord. That God is our Lord. We follow Him. And and in addition, when I think about um, the perseverance that you were talking about, that the perseverance of the saints, some people call it the preservation, right? Um, that mm-hmm. God um, preserves us. But I, I think of Hebrews chapter three, verse 14, when the writer says, for we have become partakers of Christ. Now he's talking pa- past tense. This is the perfect tense. We have become. So he's looking at the past. We have become partakers of Christ. If we hold fast mm-hmm. the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. Now, you have to be careful when you're reading that because basically what the writer is saying is that what your life shows from here to the end will prove whether you were really saved past tense. Mm-hmm. So, so in other words, he, he's saying that the future is going to prove what has happened in the past, which is very similar to 1 John 2, 19, that those who went out, they showed that they were ne- never truly of us. Yeah. Yeah. I think sometimes folks get too caught up in um, – what what happens around us rather than focusing on on what the scripture says so you know you you look at results and you say oh well maybe the scriptures the, it doesn't mean this and so we oftentimes judge you know these doctrines based on results rather than acknowledging that i mean the results around yeah. us we rarely in fact we never have the full picture um you know i used to tell people in counseling uh if if you have you know, one person in the counseling setting, you've got his, you've got his perspective, the other person's perspective, and then you have the truth, right? Which you never yes, fully right. get. Three sides. Um, right. Three yeah. sides to every story. Um, and so, a lot of times, I think, you know, it's that same kind of thing. People will see these guys who use once saved, always saved in a wrong manner, and they go off and they do their own. They say, well, I mean, that's, see, um, but we don't base the doctrine on what someone does with it because people twist every doctrine. I don't know of a single doctrine that that people don't abuse and use wrongly. Um, and so, we can't do that here either. Yeah, that's that's why we have to know all the scriptures. That's why we study systematic theology. Um, we want to draw from the whole counsel of God. We don't want to favor some verses over the other, but we want to be able to hold them all together and develop a complete theology that really explains all of it. And so when we say once saved, always saved, it doesn't give someone permission to just live whatever lifestyle they want. Mm-hmm. Um, and at the same time, uh, once saved, always saved is is not it's not a it's not a salvation based upon works, right? It's it's yeah. um, you know what we're saying is that we recognize that together with the new nature that God gives us. And so going back once again to the person struggling with assurance of salvation, um, I, I we want to be careful about fruit picking, right? Where we just go, well, mm-hmm. do you have this fruit? Do you have this fruit? Do you have this fruit? And sometimes we can tend to say, well, the solution is to get that fruit. Go and get that fruit. Well, 
Yes, um, but we want to be sure that we understand what it is they believe first and foremost, yeah. right? Because uh, salvation is not by bearing fruit. Salvation is by believing the truth. I think Paul Washer gives a really great illustration of this, brother. Um, and I can't quote it verbatim, but let me just kind of summarize it. When you're talking about, when we talk about fruit, I mean, this just kind of encapsulates that picture really well. So, um, you, you can find it wherever on YouTube. It's in one of this, the talks that he gives at a conference. But Paul Washer talks about the fruit of a regenerate heart. And he gives the example of a husband and a wife. And he talks about how, you know, the the husband before he comes, before Christ draws him, uh, before he's saved, you know, goes off to work one morning, except he yells and screams at his wife and he goes off to work and there's no remorse. There's no sorrow. There's no anything. And then the, the guy comes to Christ and some time elapses. And then he has another morning where things get intense in the home and he yells at his wife. Nothing on the outside looks any different than his pre-salvation days, but on the way to work, he feels this deep sorrow and regret over the way he treated his wife. Um, and, and so he gives that example. And, and I think that's a great example uh, to show fruit, right? We, we may not always see it on the outside um, thing there. And it doesn't mean that people don't fall into sin. They don't struggle. I mean, we look at, uh, look at Peterson, look at David, right? David, a man after God's own heart. I mean, he committed heinous sins. He committed adultery. Not only did he do that, but he murdered to cover it up and on and on and on. Um, you know, but we see that repentance there. And so, yeah. So when we talk about fruit, you know, we're, we're not the judges, you know, of people. We're not to go out and like you said, you know, pick and make sure, Hey, do you have this fruit? You have this fruit. We don't have a checklist of people. We just simply mean that for someone who is genuinely saved, there will be fruit. And it oftentimes looks like an internal desire to do what's good, uh, a heartfelt sorrow and repentance when they do wrong. Uh, and then sometimes they just have to work out um, what to do with that in, in practice and in life. Yeah, and, and I think it's a good sign when people are concerned about it to begin with, um, because unbelievers Absolutely. who hate God um, would I've never met an unbeliever that actually expressed that kind of concern. So it's, um, it is a good sign. And at the same time, we want people to understand that uh, though we believe in the doctrine of election, the doctrine of election is not meant to be portrayed as God holding people back who are actually seeking God. That's not the way it works at all. We've talked about the depravity of man on multiple occasions. Man in his nature does not seek God. And so God gives him that nature. But yes, sanctification, really that, that growth um, in each of the believers, um, that's going to look different. Um, there are some people that are going to grow more quickly than others. There are some people that uh, may have more struggles along the way. Um, that, uh, that is by God's um, sovereign plan for, for each, uh, each individual. But we do know that you know, when um, the, the fruit are valuable in this way, that people can actually use that to examine their, their walks, mm -hmm. see where they're falling short. Um, but again, you, you don't want to be legalistic by emphasizing the fruit outside of the love yeah. of God, because yeah. it's the love of God that comes first, and that leads to fruit. It's not the fruit that somehow um, points to the love of God. Yeah. And, it, you know, and the whole point of us saying that is just to say not all fruit is overly showy, so we can't always be the judge of that. Right. Uh, we just acknowledge it's there, you know, to, to go back to um, 
you know, scripture just talking about how God keeps us. I, I, I just thought of Philippians 1, 6. I don't know if we mentioned that passage or not, but it says, he who begins a good work in you will perfect it to the end. Maybe you mentioned that earlier, but again- I, I did not. That's a good one. I didn't mention that. So, you, you, you have the language of us being perfected by God, not we keep it, not we, you know, do our own thing, but we are- um, you know, God brings us to the end rather than us striving ourselves to be faithful to the end. Right. And I think also of um, Philippians chapter two, and I want to say verse 12. Uh, let me go there real quick. Yeah. Philippians two twelve. Uh, so then my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And if you just saw that by itself, um, you would think that our salvation is a result of works, but no, Paul is addressing the church, people who he is confident are saved. He is mm -hmm. talking about um, that we have salvation and we want to exercise and 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 work uh, through that salvation that we have. And verse 13, but, but he goes on to say, for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And uh, so we understand that our walk, it does take effort on our part. Yeah. There's no way around that. There are commandments here all throughout scripture. I've taught through all of Ephesians and Ephesians chapter four, verse one is the central command to that entire book. I implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling by which you have been called. Those commands are meant to be obeyed, um, but those commands are not to be detached from the glories of God's plan of redemption and his blessings upon us that were explained in the first three chapters. That's why Paul says, therefore, I implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling by which you've been called. Mm. So really that the secret to obedience is to remember what it is that we've been saved from, to remember God, remember his work, remember the glorious riches, to have our hope completely set upon the future, and then use that as our motivation towards, uh, towards obedience that glorifies God. Yeah. It, you know, brother, I think as we kind of come, come to wrap this up, we have to be committed to what scripture teaches, right? I mean, we come back to this over and over again, sort of like beating a dead horse, it seems some, sometimes. Um, but, it, you know, just because things look differently on, on the outside world, you know, we, we don't get to change what the scripture says, nor should we be afraid of um, how people may misinterpret, misunderstand, or even purposefully misuse yeah. the teachings in Scripture. We we see that, right? We see that. Um, I've been preaching through Jude. We see that you know many use God's grace uh, for licentious living, but we can't we can't be afraid of preaching the grace of God just because some abuse it, um, and and on the other side as well. And so over and over again, we let the Scriptures define what we believe and then we deal with the abuses as they come uh but but we should never shrink back from what the scriptures teach and you know so the scriptures teach that our salvation is you know apart from any good works that we do it is by grace and grace alone um through faith in christ and we can do nothing to keep we did nothing to earn that salvation nor can we do anything to keep it right God keeps it for us. He brings us to the end. Um, God causes those who he has called to himself to be faithful, to remain faithful to the end. Uh, and that, and that is, has nothing to do with, you know, the times that we mess up in the midst 
uh, of our life because all of us sin. I've never met any. Well, okay, that's not true. I actually have met a few people who claim not to sin, um, but that's ridiculous. And uh, Todd White comes to mind, but he's a heretic. So we can just set that aside. But I've never met a believer who would say, oh yeah, I never sin anymore. Yeah. And so we have to hold the scriptures the way God gives them to us and believe them and teach that uh, and not let outside circumstances or people who, yeah, misunderstand or misuse those change what scripture says. We can never do that. Yeah. And to your point, uh, using Todd White as an example, um, if he has said that he is perfect, well, he even violated that himself when he repented of preaching a prosperity gospel. Remember that last year and, and Justin Peters had covered that as yeah. well. And then he went right back to- He's unrepented from his repentance. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Right. So you can't say that you're perfect and then actually have to repent and then go back and and then unrepent of that uh, repentance. But um, to your point, we we don't shirk back from teaching what the Word of God teaches. Um, we understand that these the doctrines of grace, um, the doctrines of salvation, the, these are complex. And we understand that the natural man to the natural man, it's going to look like foolishness. And we also understand that to unbelievers, it's going to look like foolishness. What we mm. trust in is the work of the Holy Spirit, because it's the Holy Spirit that has to convict the heart first and foremost. Um, Jesus even gave that uh, promise in John 16, verse 7. He says, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage I go away. If I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And he, when he comes, will convict the world concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment concerning sin because they do not believe in me. So we preach the truth, but we recognize that the Holy Spirit is going to have mm -hmm. to convict their hearts of that truth. And we recognize also that the word of God came to us by way of the Holy Spirit, holding the Holy Spirit working through men mm -hmm. to write down the word that came from God. And so we recognize that this is all a work of God. The Holy Spirit is instrumental in helping people understand we're just simply called to be faithful. Faithful. And then one last um, verse that comes to mind, obviously, we think about the sovereignty of God and we think about Romans 8, 28. Mm -hmm. God causes all things to come together for good, but yeah. not for everyone, specifically those who love God and are called according to his purpose. And then it goes on to say that those whom God foreknew, he also did what? He predestined. And those whom he predestined, he did what? Mm -hmm. He called. Those whom he called, he justified. Those whom he justified, he glorified. Meaning, Throughout the entire process of salvation, going back to even before the foundation of the world, when God foreknew you, all the way to the end state, when God will glorify you, give you glorified bodies, that's what that glorification is referring to, all throughout, God is completely sovereign. And if he foreknew you, then you can rest assured that he has also predestined you, he has called you, he has justified you, he has glorified you. Nowhere in there is there the idea that he has foreknown you and he predestined and called you, uh, but once you are justified, you might lose that. No, the, the idea is that God is sovereign completely over that entire process. To believe otherwise, you, you would have to believe that you can overcome the power of God. Your ability yes. to be lost is greater than God's ability to be kept. And if you truly believe that, then you, you need to go see your pastor yesterday. Um, <laughs> it, you know, but, but really, I mean, you, you would have to come to that place. And so, yeah, I think we would both just say, believe the scriptures, you know, um, you don't have to make apology for what God gave us. It's absolute truth. Um, it's undeniable. It's unchangeable. It's forever. So believe it and take comfort in it uh, and, and be a good Christian and, and obey it. Amen.
Yeah, just uh, just to add on top of that, I mean, amen to what you said. God, God is the one that has given us a supernatural heart. He has. He, I should rephrase that. He has supernaturally regenerated, given us a regenerated heart, Re replaced the heart of stone with a heart of flesh. And if we could lose that salvation, then that new heart is really no different than the old heart. It's no different than the old. And even, and I had mentioned Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34, I won't read it, but if you were to go to that passage, God promised a new covenant and he specifically contrasted it to the old covenant. He said, this is not like the old covenant, which your forefathers broke, mm -hmm. in, you know, starting from that day when I brought them out of Egypt. That's obviously referring to the Mosaic law. But the implication is this, this new covenant is better than the old. The old one was broken. This new one, the idea cannot be broken. And how's that? Because he goes on to say that I will write my law in their heart and they will know me and they will obey me and mm -hmm. they will walk according to my, my law laws and my statutes. Um, so we understand once again that God's work is supernatural. It is more powerful to your point. God's work is more powerful than our sin. And if it's more powerful than our sin, what makes us think that our sin can suddenly overcome it and cause that salvation to be lost? Amen, brother. Well, to end on the words of Jesus again that we read earlier, my father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. That's the truth. Saints, thanks for joining us. And until next time, let the truth be known. The Truth Be Known podcast is a theologically driven, gospel-centered program serving the body of Christ by bringing biblical truth to bear on issues facing the church today. Subscribe to the Truth Be Known podcast by using the podcast app on your Apple or Android device or listen online at strivingforeternity.org in the podcast section.